at the base of the Mount of Olives, right next to the Garden of Gethsemane, not far from ancient Jerusalem, which is just across the Kidron Valley on the other way, on the other side, there is called, there is the Church of All Nations. A sign at the entrance to the church says, no explanations inside the church. The reason for that is, we assume, is that they don't want tour guides coming in with their tourist groups to ruin the prayerful ambience of that beautiful space with their talk about what they might be seeing, what they might be looking at. So there's no explanations inside the church of all nations. I read a preacher last week who said, that's a good idea for Easter Sunday. This is not a day for explanations. This is not a day where you come with logic and reason and scientific evidence that demands some kind of a verdict. No, not, not at all. Today is a day not to explain God, but to experience God in the music, in the beauty of the literature, in the readings, in the prayers, in all the rest, maybe in the presence of each other, to experience something of what it means to be together in God's place, in this sacred and holy space. You see, if we work too hard to explain, we sometimes create some theological issues and, and problems. There was, a, there was an old pastor, retired, who was invited to come back to his church and participate in a service, and they wanted him to do the moment for children. Have you seen these before? A lot of churches do them. They invite all the children down to the chancel and, and sit around the pastor as the pastor tells a story. Well, they asked the pastor, would you do this, and would you explain to the kids how we can experience God in nature? He said, sure, I'd love to do that. The kids come down, they fill the chancel, they sit at his feet, he sits down among them, and he begins by saying, children, today, I'm thinking of something small, covered in gray fur, it has a very furry tail, a fluffy tail, and it loves to climb trees. Do you know what I'm talking about? And the little boy raises his hand, and he says, I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus, but that sounds like a squirrel. <laughs> So you see, you see what happens? We, we try to explain things too much. We create problems and issues. We end up with a fluffy-tailed Jesus, and that just doesn't quite work. That's not where we want to go. We don't come today with explanations and logic. We come, well, maybe many of us come, like the women in Luke's gospel. Broken dreams, broken hearts, souls torn apart by sorrow. They're, their Lord is dead. Maybe you come on this day wondering, wondering, as Karl Barth, the great theologian, once said years ago, wondering, is it all true? The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, is it true? Is it true? I want you to know I've been in the Church of All Nations. I've been there twice. My wife, Julie, and I have led two trips to the Holy Land. On the first one, we were running behind schedule, and our guide, as he dropped us off at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, said, I'm sorry, but we're late for lunch. Five minutes, please. Five minutes. We barely had time to go inside the church and sort of look around and sense the beauty and the sacredness of it. Then we had to get back in and load the bus. And, and we had, there were about 40 of us, and we wanted to be sure we got them all taken care of for lunch that day. The second time was last fall when Julie and I led another group, this one from First Community Church, to the Holy Land. We were well ahead of schedule. Lots of time to spend on the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and in the Church of All Nations. It was crowded, though. I mean, it was it, cr more crowded than we are here today, just wall-to-wall -wall people, not only in the pews, but walking around. You were sort of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder like this. No one was really paying attention to a mass that was taking place up on the chancel, but I thought I'd like to have a few moments of worship. I wasn't sure what the language was. 
I think it was Roman Catholic Mass, but the, the moves and the movement of, of liturgy are something that speaks across all language barriers, really. So I made my way to the front, and as I did, I, I looked over on the left side of the chancel, and there was a woman there. She was kneeling. She was holding on to the rail next to the, to the altar, holding on to it like, like it was a lifeboat, like the side of a life raft. As I got closer, I could see that there were tears streaming down her face. I sat down two chairs away from her, and I heard her say, please, please, please. We, we don't need to explain it. I don't know what she was praying for specifically, but I suspect most of us, all of us, have had those moments, have we not, when we're pleading with God, pleading with the, the sacred holiness of the universe, pleading with something, with someone, please, please, I, I need more love, I, I need more hope, I, I need life, please. There are no explanations needed, really. The story of Easter is not so much the story of life after death. It's the story of receiving life before death, of whether or not we're going to be alive now and experience the newness that God gives to us and to the world in this moment. But, but we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Go back to the text for a moment, if you would. When the women come to the tomb, to the tomb of Jesus, they're not looking for Easter. There are no flowers. There's no brass, no beautiful music, no hallelujahs. They're not looking for angels, people in dazzling white clothes, nothing like that at all. They're, they've come to anoint the corpse of their Lord, of their Lord who has died. Now, please don't think lightly of these women. Their, their courage is amazing. They, according to Luke's gospel, they were there at the skull where Jesus was executed by the state. They were there when his body was taken off the cross and buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. They're there now two days later, to anoint his body with spices. To be connected to Jesus in this moment takes great courage. He was killed by the politicians. He was seen as an enemy of the state. To be connected with him means that their lives are in danger, but with courage, fear no doubt, but with courage they take each step at a time, staying close to him. It's a sermon, really, in action. Well, the question from, this, these, from the man in dazzling clothes, I suppose it's an angel. Don't, no explanations today, though. No explanations. Puts him on the spot. Why do you look for the living among the dead? You see, these women, they were stuck in the past. They were clinging to what had been. They had forgotten about what might be and the promise of life that Jesus had spoken of many, many times throughout their, their, their years together. And I think, I think we know about this, don't we? I read a preacher last week who said, we cling to former visions of ourselves and our churches as if they might come back to life as long as we hold on to them. We know about that, don't we? Have you ever found yourself longing, holding on to, clinging to, clutching something that was from your past, from who you used to be or might have been, the way things used to be, only to find yourself just dragging it along, dragging it along, never able to experience the moment now, the moment that's before you and the life that, that maybe God has put right in front of you? Have you ever held on to something so long that it became a burden and a barrier to life? Why, why do we do this? Peter Gomes, the great preacher at Harvard Chapel said, we're hostages to fear. 
we're held back by fear. Because we're afraid of the future, of tomorrow, of what we might have to face about ourselves, we hold on to that past. We cling, we cling tightly to it, dragging it along, not recognizing that it's slowing us down from experiencing the life that Jesus has come to give us. Gomes went on in the sermon. He said, Easter is not just about Jesus. Jesus has already found life. Easter is about you and me and about all of us finding life before death. Before death. The resurrection invites us to a new way of life, one that is filled with the courage of these women so we can find the courage we need to face our own need for forgiveness, for grace, for mercy. To find especially the great bravery it takes often to forgive the other. The women are terrified when they encounter this empty tomb, these men in dazzling clothes. But note this, their terror doesn't control them. They go back. They follow their instructions. They go back and they tell, we've seen, we've seen an empty tomb. We've seen a report that he is alive. He is alive. Just pause there for a second, would you please, for just a moment. Notice this. Who are the first Christian preachers in the Christian church? Women. If you know somebody who says women can't be pastors, you give them my phone number, will you please? I'll help them understand this. What happens when we, like those women in that story, don't let terror and fear control us? What happens when we, when we find the courage to live the life that God intends for all of us? What happens? We discover that grace and justice can be woven together. Tom Long, great preacher down in Atlanta, tells a mar marvelous story about the time he was in New York City for a baseball game at Yankee Stadium. He was sitting down along the left field foul line when a foul ball came over toward him where he was sitting. There was a little boy right in front of him. He was a little boy, he was about nine years old. He was there with his mom. He had on a pair of those cheap binoculars, plastic binoculars, you know. He was wearing a Yankee cap, but it was too big for his head. It was coming down over his ears. On his left hand, he had a baseball glove, but, but not a worn-in baseball glove that's used by a kid who plays a lot of baseball. It was sort of kind of cheap-looking and not very worn-in at all. The, the, the glove that the right fielder at the end of the game wears, you know, one that's not going to get used, used at all. But his eyes are wide open. He sees this ball coming, and he's, he's just hoping, oh, finally, what I hope for is going to come. There it is. It's coming right to him. Then all of a sudden, this guy, maybe 35, he's in pretty good shape. He's wearing a tight-knit shirt. And he's got a, got a dead animal or something on his shirt. You know, he's got a little horse or a crocodile or something. And, and he just runs over to get the ball, and he knocks that kid down, and he makes the catch. The crowd, just as somebody just now did, said, what? Oh, did you see that? And then somebody shouts from behind, give the kid the ball. This guy, Mr. Logo shirt, no, he shakes his head. He goes back to his seat. Somebody else says, give the kid the ball. Another two people stand up. They start crying just like this one. And they stand up and they go, give the kid the ball. Give the kid the ball. Pretty soon the entire left field stand starts shouting, give the kid the ball. Give the kid the ball. It helps to have a choir sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. Still. Mr. Logo, he's sitting there. He's not going to do it. He's just holding on that ball tightly. By this big burly guy, kind of a muscly dude, he walks over and he whispers in the guy's ear and he just, Mr. Logo shakes his head no and the, the burly guy kind of stands back and then he leans in again and gets real intense. No one hears him. Gets real intense and then the guy goes, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> and he gives the kid the ball and somebody says, he gave the kid the ball. Now here's where the story gets interesting. The next inning, sure enough, another foul ball comes over there, bounces into the crowd. Somebody grabs it, and he runs down to Mr. Logo's shirt. 
and he hands him the ball. A couple innings later, there's another foul ball. It, this one goes to the big burly muscly guy. He catches it, he grabs it, and he tosses it to the kid with the broken binoculars. And the kid catches it, and everyone cheers. Tom Long says, that night people came to watch the Yankees play baseball, but what they saw was an acted out parable of justice and grace woven together. Miroslav Volf, a very good theologian from Yale, says that the work of the cross is about making the world a right for justice. It's not just about simple forgiveness. Do you hear this? It's not just about simple forgiveness. It's about making the world a right for justice, about lining us all up together. That's the work of Easter. That's the work of the cross. That's the work of the empty tomb. We're often afraid that, that forgiveness and grace will cause us to feel bad about ourselves when actually facing our need for them opens up our lives for a new life. We need the courage of Mary Magdalene and the other women so we can embrace the new life that God wants, wants to give to us. So let me be clear about this. We are not here today to take care of your eternal soul. That's something that God will do. That's the work of God. That's the work of God. And it's a promise from Scripture from beginning to end is that in the end of all ends, there will be. My faith is solid. My faith is built on that there will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. There will be no more crying, no more weeping. Death itself will be gone. And God, God's very self, will make God's home among us. That's the promise. We're not worried about life after death. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to ask, in the light of the resurrection story, are you willing to find life before death, to be fully alive in the moment named now? See, there's a story about Jesus two days before Palm Sunday in the Gospel of Luke. He's in Jericho, about, getting, about to get ready to go up to Jerusalem. He sees a man there named Zacchaeus. Maybe you've heard this story before. Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector. He's a scoundrel. He's a traitor to his country. He steals from his neighbors. He keeps most of the stuff that he receives, gives some of it back to Rome. In every way possible, he is a terrible human being. Jesus sees him, and what does Jesus say? I'm coming to your house. I'm coming to your house, Zacchaeus, today. They sit down together, and Zacchaeus, in that experience with Jesus, does a complete flip around. He turns his life completely around. He runs back out into the streets. He repays everyone, everyone that he'd stolen from and taken from, even more than he'd taken from originally. Gives it all back to them. He turns his entire life around, and Jesus says, today, salvation has come to your house. Salvation, do you see how that works? It's not about getting into heaven. God will take care of that. It's about being alive today. The very word itself means in the original language to be alive, fully alive in the here and the now. That's what resurrection faith looks like. It's finding the courage to be alive among the living, to let go of the stuff, to see the new life that God wants to set before you even now on this very day but I know it's hard because what happened to Zacchaeus was he had to look at his worst self. It's hard for us to, to acknowledge that person we've harmed, to admit our need for forgiveness. Sometimes we, we like to stay in the guilt because it kind of feels good, but no, we got to leave guilt behind too so that reconciliation can take place. So the life that we want can finally be experienced. Miroslav Wolf, that theologian I quoted a moment ago, has a friend named Esther. 
Esther, when she was nine years old, was abandoned by her mother. Her mother was an alcoholic, a raging alcoholic. She would fly into fits of rage and then drink too much and pass out, and she finally just left her family, abandoned her daughter and her husband, left them. Esther said when she was a little girl, she made a promise, I will never love my mommy, and I don't ever want to see her again. It hurt too much. But years later, in her mid-20s, she had a revelation. As painful as it had been to be with her mom, she wanted to have a relationship with her. She determined to find her. She did a search and found that she was living in a small town in Iowa. She made arrangements to meet her. She drove there to her house. Her heart was pounding with fear. Her palms were sweaty with nervousness, but she knocked on the door. Her mom opened it, and immediately they fell into each other's arms, sobbing and crying and laughing and holding each other, wrapping their arms so tightly around each other they thought they were just going to squeeze forever. Esther was overcome. She, she couldn't say anything. She just completely lost the ability to speak, but her mom said, it's okay, I want, I want to take you around town. I want you to meet everybody and see all my friends. So she took her right down to her hairdresser and said, this is my daughter Esther. It's so nice for you to see her. Isn't, it, isn't she wonderful? Went to the grocer. This is my daughter Esther. They went all over town introducing her. Finally, they came back to their home and they sat down for a meal that her mom had prepared. When the meal was over, they went back into the living room. Esther said to her mom, Mom, I, I want to apologize. I want to say I'm sorry. When you left us, it hurt. But I said then I was never going to love you, and I was never, ever going to see you again. I just want to tell you that I'm, I'm sorry. Will you, will you forgive me? And her mother immediately said, Oh, oh Esther, of course I forgive you. I forgive you. I, I forgive you. I forgive you. And then Esther waited. The silence was awkward. She waited. You see, what Esther thought was that when she would apologize to her mother for being angry at her for all those years, for hating her all those years, that her mother would do the same and, and reciprocate and say, I'm, I'm sorry for abandoning you. I'm sorry for the alcoholic rages. I'm, I'm sorry. And, but nothing. Silence. Finally, Esther gets up from the couch and goes over to where her mother is sitting. Esther sits at her mom's feet and she, she takes a hold of her hands. She leans in. She says, Mommy, I love you and I forgive you. I, I turned out okay, Mommy. I, I wanted you to see that. I, I want to be your, your daughter. I want us to have a relationship. I, I want you to know I forgive you. I forgive you. And immediately her mother began to sob and she began to rock back and forth and she start, started saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again until they collapsed once again into a pool of weeping. It was a baptism of tears. Esther later realized the guilt that her mother was carrying forward into the future was so heavy, the burden was so great, she couldn't come to the point where she could acknowledge her need for forgiveness. She couldn't say the words out loud until she heard her daughter saying, Mommy, I forgive you. This is the Easter message. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are, none of us, 
ever beyond the forgiveness of God. This is what an Easter faith looks like. This is an Easter faith for the world, not just for you and me, but this faith invites us instead to be embraced by the love and forgiveness of God, to hear the words echoing across our souls that we are loved now and forever. It is an invitation to you and I to find life before death. Amen.